Are you living the crazy life of a sports parent? This is Sports Parenthood, the podcast packed with cool conversations with sports people, coaches and professionals for rookie sports parents just like you. You'll hear nuggets of gold in every episode with your hosts, fellow sports parents, John and Tiffany Bonacera. and sports performance. How does music affect athletes? What does the science say? In this episode of Sports Parenthood, we speak with psychologist and behaviour coach Hamish McMaster. You might remember him. We've spoken to Hamish previously about finding the balance between fun and achieving goals. For those of you who didn't hear that episode, scroll back through your feed. If you can to have a listen, it's episode 17. This time we want to know if music, and I quote, is a type of legal performance-enhancing drug. John, what's your music go-to? Well, anyone who's my age probably references the 80s as being a bit of a pump-up period there and, and go to the old uh, Final Countdown or the, uh, the Eye of the Tiger. Dun, 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 as, uh, Anything else as, in, your, in your repertoire? Oh, there's probably a few. Simply the best uh-huh. rugby league theme song. Um, I know, Tiff, when you were an athlete, you listened to music. I did. I remember listening to the power of one soundtrack on my Walkman before <laughs> racing. It helped me feel like I was running freely in big open spaces. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the soundtrack, but uh, it has a bit of an African theme to it. And I channeled this when I ran. After speaking with Hamish, it reinforced that the right music for the right moment can, in fact, divert fatigue. Actually, we learned quite a bit here, Tiff, didn't we? We certainly learned that there's a lot more research into music and sports performance than we initially thought. And we think you'll find this really fascinating. Just a quick note, we tried something new with all three of us in different locations while recording this episode. The audio quality is not perfect, but the message is still loud and clear. Here's Hamish. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me back, and it's it's great to talk about this topic again with with you both. And I, I guess the reason why this topic uh, plays a, a part in the practice I do is because music and sound, you know, connects to my specialty as a cognitive psychologist. And mm-hmm. and when I say that, what I what I like to do and what I what I uh, do with athletes is really work on those kind of mental processes around thinking, how they experience things, their senses and Music plays a large part of that, along with some of those other factors, particularly in practice and in performing. And I guess my interest goes way back, if we can take ourselves back to the 80s just for a moment, oh, if you'd indulge me. Um, John's favourite decade. <laughs> so back to, back to 1985, uh, there was a, a VHS, if we can again adopt that technology mindset just for a moment. John McEnroe and, and Ivan Lindor, who were the, the preeminent tennis players in, in that era and, and even a little bit beyond, released a, a video, an instructional video called uh, The Winning Edge uh, Lessons mm-hmm. with the Pros, uh, VHS, as, as I said earlier. And it was an instructional video sort of for the general public as to, uh, you know, how they play tennis, what their mindset is, uh, you know, tactical, uh, you know, stroke development, those kinds of things. And interestingly, in that in that video, they talk about music and they use music yeah. and they just sort of incidentally revealed uh, some of their music tastes uh, and uh, and also uh, that they play in 
and they trained to music. And we might return back to this story, but the two the two songs I just forever remember on that uh, old 80s VHS tape was uh, uh, Sting's Walking on the Moon, which is one of the songs that, that was played frequently uh, with them, and also um, Shake It Up by the Cars, which uh, <laughs> another song. So if we're, if we're taking ourselves back to the 80s, then, uh, yes. then those were two of, of a number of different songs uh, that were used by, by John and Ivan. And, and it just, you know, ever since then, and as I progressed through, obviously, my, my studies at university and uh, my postgraduate research, research those things uh, around music and other cognitive aspects of performance have been a sort of a foundation of how I apply psychology with my athletes and my coaches what a great story when i think of the 80s and the psych up songs and stuff like that i'm into the uh you know the eye of the tiger and final countdown and perhaps a bon jovi like a living on a prayer or that that type of thing are the ones that resonate for me you know in a dressing room scenario or a or a pre-contest scenario because they're they're such good pump-up songs and everybody knows them yeah, well, that's right, John. And, and and I think as as people are listening to this podcast now, they're going to. They're, I, I imagine they would have already taken themselves to a, a time. Yes. yes. In terms of a calendar Definitely. time, where they were during uh, during those songs, depending on perhaps the age and the generation that they are, uh, and when they uh, evoked, uh, you know, that emotional kind of memory that, that they may yes. have as they listen to this. And and that's why uh, sporting teams, you know, use uh, use music in in a crowd effect as well. To, uh-huh to almost uh, create institutional music for audiences as much as it may do for players and athletes themselves. Yeah, well, in the 80s or the late 80s, rugby league used the Simply the Best, Tina Turner, and that was a, a song that still resonates today for our game. You know, 30 mm-hmm. years on. A lot of fans and also <laughs> players of that era, when they hear that music, uh, you know, get transported to yes. either a memory of being at a ground, either a local ground or a bigger stadium, or watching it perhaps even on TV. And, and they have that association. It's a conditioned response psychologically between that music, the emotion it may conjure up, and then what they might have been visually seeing at the time or, or the association to obviously uh, uh, rugby league. 100%. Mate, let's talk about the science. We know you love you the science, Divulge <laughs> The world-leading researcher on music performance, Dr. Costas Karagiorgis, who's authored over 100 studies, says that one can think of music as a type of legal performance-enhancing drug. Well, what can you say about that? Yeah, I, I mean, Costas is uh, the preeminent researcher in this area around uh, music performance and sport. He's He's uh, got, a, got a large institution at Brunel University in London. He, he's got a great research base uh, and he's really advancing, you know, the study of, of music and, and sport performance in a number of different uh, avenues, different kinds of sport performance um, and looking for different affect. And, and he definitely has, has made some, some really great statements and also some caveats about that. And, and I'm mm-hmm. happy to sort of share, mm. share that, including uh, some, of, some of the research. Uh, and and he's, he's got a great summary. He, he, would, he would essentially, I think, say that you know, there's four or five ways in which uh, music can moderate either up or down affect mm-hmm. um, uh, performance. And so I'll go through the four or five and then, mm. and then if we want awesome. to, we can talk about some of them in more detail if, if, they're, if they're more interesting for you both. So the first one uh, seems uh, probably the most obvious one. We just talked about it with some of those 80 emotional, 80s emotional uh, memories of songs. Mm. So the first one's around, you know, moderating or regulating sort of emotion. You know, what does it do to our emotional state? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the first area. The second one, probably closely associated with that, is around this sort of 
magical mythical idea of flow and mm-hmm. and some athletes talk about this oh, i'm in the zone or i'm in mm-hmm. the flow i just feel what's happening and so music can have a an effect on on that state that athletes uh, can perform in the, the third one great for kids great for uh, skill acquisition uh, especially as as, as learners uh, it can actually enhance um, learning uh, mm. a particular skill it can enhance learning motor skills particularly Mm. Um, and the reason it can do that is associated with another reason, which is synchronization. Sometimes, depending on what a music or even a metronome or other sound, uh, it can it can really work to mimic the sound of a beat in a music mm-hmm. piece to movement. Um, mm-hmm. And so you can get some really good synchronization effects between movement and the actual motor skill you might be trying to learn. And then the, and then the last one is really around dissociation, which is really you know, a cognitive skill where you try to divert your attention from one thing to another. And in, in his research, he's really found some good effects around how you can divert fatigue uh, mm-hmm. consciously. You know, if, if you're reaching fatigue as an athlete, can you abate that somehow and, and uh, attend to other things so that that fatigue is not, doesn't have the same perceptual load and doesn't influence what you're trying to execute? Well, it kind of explains my next question, but I'm keen to understand what your thoughts are on it and probably yours too, John. So um, back in 2007, USA Track and Field banned the use of headphones and portable audio players at official races, creating the rule to ensure safety and to prevent runners from having a competitive edge. They couldn't enforce it in the end, but really keen to understand, I guess, based on what you just said, do you feel that it does provide that, that competitive edge, Hamish? Yeah, it was it was an interesting time when that ruling came out, mm. and uh, you know, at the time when it came out, and there was some uh, there was some sort of reaction negatively from a lot of runners and and organisers as well mm. when that occurred as to you know why this is happening, and and they they adjusted the rule eventually to essentially allow uh, the discretion of race directors to determine um, right. whether or not and how music was going to be a, a, a used at a sanctioned uh, a kind of event, which essentially gives them a lot of flexibility to do that. Mm. Um, you know, it was in response to that. There was a bit of an undercurrent that they actually felt, you know, at that time, we're going back to 2007, you know, mm. the, the MP3 was kind of uh, yeah. sometimes more the, more the factor or the iPod. You know, we've got far different kinds of technologies mm. now with, with smartphones and smartwatches and other forms of uh, portable music. But mm-hmm. there was a concern, too, that music might be distracting and therefore dangerous to runners uh, in terms of um, impeding mm. other runners. Their awareness is, is kind of, Diluted, and in fact, mm. there's some really interesting um, research out of um, John John Hopkins University in the states around you know the, those phenomenons of of directing attention, and and when we have competing stimuli, what determines perhaps whether we look at one or focus on one uh, mode of of, it, of stimuli versus another. And there was some great research around around uh, you know attending to cell phones, for example, while while driving. Mm. Oh um, yeah. And 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 you can see this sometimes in the in the new design of of modern cars, where when you engage uh, your car in reverse and you're listening to the radio, sometimes um, some cars have an automatic adjustment where your where your car uh, volume, or your volume in your stereo uh, drops. I don't know if either of you have cars that do. Yeah, that. I, I, I don't. I, I don't either, but I'm, I've been in cars that do. <laughs> yeah, we have so, very old cars, Hamish. No such yeah, technology. Yeah, well, likewise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But certainly that's, that's there obviously for safety, mm. but it's there mm. because of this effect of divided attention. So, mm-hmm. you know, at a general level, you think, well, you know, if, if you're listening to music, how, how, how can that 
inhibit and it's really around how much attention you can you can um, you can kind of absorb into your your prefrontal cortex and actually attend to and obviously if you're listening to something and you're visually paying attention attention to something when you're driving mm-hmm. then essentially what your brain is trying to do is tune down one of those two if indeed that stimulus is becoming uh, too great for you to process mm-hmm. uh, and in that case generally uh a lot of people, it's, you can see it has been measured in labs, but also anecdotally, sometimes people will actually turn down their stereo or even their cell phone, particularly when they reverse, but also sometimes just when they're driving in a trickier condition, suddenly rain comes through or fog, yeah. and they want to allow their, their attention to be solely focused on those visual things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that research is really interesting because it connects into Costas's research around uh, the performance element and then and what are those, uh, you know, how, how much of a, a scientific affect uh, does, does occur here? And, and there's, a, there's a ceiling effect, and it's partly due to that uh, ability to attend or that inability to have divided uh, attention. And, and so what generally happens uh, is that those, those factors or those ways in which uh, music does affect our, our performance uh, definitely has an effect, but there's a ceiling. Um, and that ceiling oh. has been measured by Costas at about 75% of, of output. So, and that 75% could be measured in, um, in heart rate. So that's your maximum, uh, 75% of your maximum heart rate that you might be producing. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could measure it with VO2 max. Um, and again, 75% seems to be the approximate ceiling where some of those effects I talked about earlier are mm-hmm. uh, stay either steady or decline. And it's in part because of that limited ability for us to attend to some of the actual components of, of the music, particularly the, the beat of that music. So with that in mind, mate, and, and this is probably a good segue into discussing an athlete's like perceived level of exertion or their perceived effort uh, and that the research showing that potentially this music while exercising can reduce that. And you obviously talked about disassociation and being able to divert fatigue and, and that music can help in this process. With that, with that ceiling, are you? Um, are we talking about something like the inverted U theorem, as in you know that we're overly aroused? Yeah, to to some extent, because over arousal definitely inhibits our ability to focus, uh, as does under arousal. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, athletes try to find that sweet spot uh, discussed earlier, that zone or being in the zone or being in flow, which is that sort of somewhat um, immeasurable, but also partly measurable sort of peak performance, which is in this zone. And Costa's research really sort of shows that that RPE is, is what we measure. So that's the, the rate of perceived exertion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the components of that broadly are either physiological or psychological. And we, and we kind of measure both of those things. Mm-hmm. So let's say we're doing a, a closed training drill, you know, in, in a football code, uh, and, and the training drill might be 30 minutes long. Um, we can collect data following that drill and we can collect individual data from the players and also the coaches and we can mm-hmm. determine what someone's baseline and then also um, RPE is at the conclusion of that drill. And we can measure those things uh, from a physiological perspective, heart rate, skin conductance, et cetera, and then also um, mental demand, psychological demand. And that's how we, that's how we measure and that's sort of the standard of, of most laboratory studies. Um, that measured the influence of, of music on, on sport. Nice. And so we, we look at that RPE 
and and Costas research is is really telling. It says that uh, you know at low to moderate levels of exercise, when mm-hmm. we measure that RPE, we can decrease the perceived exertion in athletes by as much as twelve percent, as low as eight, but it averages at about ten percent or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So That's an athlete coming off that will report a lower level of perceived exertion. But the caveat, as this research really suggests, and, and really it's categorical. There's that ceiling. It only occurs mm. up to about 75% of your maximum output, um, which then mm. begs the question, you know, when you're in a training mode, particularly as a, as a pre-elite or as, a, as an elite uh, athlete, you know, very regularly you are well beyond 75%, yeah. even in a training component because you yes. are training under load, you're training under game scenario. So very often um, you're training above that level. Mm. Which means it's not a value. Well, that's the int- a great question, component. John, because it, it mm. is of some it is of some value, and that's that's the tricky thing. So, how do we how do we equate that sum mm. value? So, mm. what what um what it uh, starts to do is it starts to uh, affect less of the RPE, less of the rate of perceived exertion, but what it can do is it can still affect your mood or emotional state uh-huh. at high levels of exertion. Uh-huh. So, and this is where cognition and understanding the brain kind of comes into play because the the science sort of says that, you know, um, the processing that occurs that's really attending to um, to the, the beat and even the the melody to mm. some extent is really uh, being processed. And there's only there's only limited processing in our brain that can attend to that. The okay. emotional state or the mood really occurs in some other areas of the brain, the cerebellum, the amygdala, mm. and those areas don't need that prefrontal cortex, which uh, requires much more of that thoughtfulness planning. What am I about to do next? Who am I passing to? Where are mm-hmm. my players around me? Those other uh, game sense uh, kinds of uh, actions and, and thought processes. And so because of that, the science is saying that music can still above that 75% threshold affect your emotional state. It can mm-hmm. influence mood. It can influence uh, uh, kind of the tonality of your experience, pardon the pun of that word, but the tonality yeah, no, no. of your experience yeah, of, um, of the sport that you're doing. And, and that's a large part why when you go to big community events that the professional clubs put on or, you know, local councils where there's large um, groups of young kids and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, kids are getting introduced to a sport, uh, you hear music and yeah. you hear music associated with, uh, with a lot of those events and it's used very well to sort of, you know, make make a create a mood, yeah. uh, create some fun, a sense of belonging. But all of these are these emotions, right? And and so they're a great way to sort of almost create some social glue mm. as to you know what's happening in this experience. And there's music associated with that. There's music associated with supermarket shopping, isn't there, John? Indeed, <laughs> that's they very get, specific get, too. I think they're targeting our area. They, they get, get you. Me every, every time they get me, I, I walk in, I start humming and singing, and I'm just. Dropping things into the trolley. <laughs> <laughs> See, so you need to you need to re- retune re- there, John. Maybe maybe so there's that divided attention. See, a very yes. low effort. Let's assume shopping for you is low effort. Oh, you know, oh, so I was just about right. to say, mate. I reckon I'm operating about eighty percent. <laughs> Hang on, you've got to follow your list. You know, if you, <laughs> oh, where's that one in aisle six? Maybe maybe we should measure your, your RPE after um, after your shopping experience to get it to get a baseline as to you know. What it is, and then and then make that shopping experience more difficult Absolutely. for you. So it still has an impact. Uh, <laughs> I guess, um, you know, Hamish, 
thinking about it sort of looking from the outside looking in, you know, as spectators, we often watch athletes walk out onto a field or onto a court or, you know, into a swimming kind of stadium uh, with their headphones on. Uh, Do you think they're always listening to music? I think many are, but Mm -hmm. some aren't. and whether they're doing that because of the science or whether they're doing that uh, because that works for them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we could we could debate that. I know some of my uh, some of my athletes I work with, particularly in some of the uh, the codes like swimming and diving, for example, use noise cancelling headphones mm-hmm. deliberately without noise uh, for two reasons. One, they're trying to narrow their attention mm-hmm. uh, by blocking out uh, sound, and as we talked about that um, with that cell phone uh, driving example. Um, what that's doing for them is it's helping them narrow their focus and mm-hmm. and those particular um, uh, sporting codes require, particularly diving, a pronounced mm. uh, narrow level of attention. Part of it's uh, sociological or, or, or social. Sometimes some of them are trying to not be interrupted. Uh, and, yep. and uh, you know, these days I guess um, headphones and, and pods and buds are all a bit more ubiquitous. Everyone's sort of wearing them. Mm. Um, but Often, when we are, we don't always go and chat to the person because they're on they're, they're they're on a phone call or they or they listen to music. So they're they sort of you know we can't interrupt them. And sometimes I know some of the athletes I work with do that because they don't want to be interrupted. Mm. So by mm-hmm. you know visually showing uh, headphones uh, that that sort of what they're doing is they're they're sort of sending a, a social signal to others that hey I'm here in my space or I am I'm I'm listening to music or maybe I am but I I'm not going to get interrupted. Interesting. You know, some clearly are, and and again, that comes down to that internal and external attentional bias, and some yep. athletes have quite an external one, and so they want not only uh, perhaps a response from an audience, from a crowd watching, they also want an elevation in mood, perhaps, or an elevation in their heart rate, so they listen to particular music that you know just intrinsically does that for them, mm. um, but some don't, and they're doing that uh, probably very deliberately in order to do some of the other things that that music is really good at, which is lowering some of that intensity. So some mm. uh, some athletes may use music that you might not yeah. think they're listening to. They're not yeah. listening to music that's... Lower that's, a heart rate. Like yeah, they're, they're, they're like absolutely right, John. They're using music to do uh, you know, the opposite of some of the effects we've talked about. You know, We've mm. talked about some of that raising and elevating of heart mm. rate elevating of mood and they might want you know some 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 quieter music um it's mm. uh, some, some great study again out of out of the uh the u.s um and, and a lot of these are done in, in, in sort of medical universities this one's out of university of pennsylvania they they wanted to see whether they could get any changes or any differences in uh someone's anxiety response going into an mri machine with a nerve block mm. uh and and patients can have kind of you know a claustrophobic or anxious mm. uh, uh, kind of response to that, and so usually there's a mild sedative that's um, that's injected into patients that do that. So this study sort of showed, well, let's let's keep that uh, let's keep that um, group uh, under that uh, conditions, and then let's use another another condition. In this condition, they played a particular piece of music. Anyone could find this on on YouTube or on the internet. Um, it's, it's by this. Um, this body called Marconi Union, that's the name of the, the group or the, mm-hmm. the, the group that's put this together. The name of their music, interestingly enough, called Weightless. Uh, so mm. just the name itself conveys, you know, a, a mood it itself. It's, it's about eight minutes long. You, you'll find this on the I'll on the put internet. it in the show notes. I'll, uh, I'll search for it and I'll include it because that's very interesting. Yeah, and, and so this was, this was constructed deliberately uh, to 
evoke, you know, a very harmonious kind of uh, sounds, uh, you know, sound therapists we use to help create it. Interestingly enough, it's got a, a BPM, so beats per minute, which mm-hmm. is the, the way we might measure the beats and the rhythm in a particular piece of music. That has a BPM of 60 uh, throughout that eight minutes. Oh. That's how it averages out at 60. Uh, most of those songs we, we talked about right earlier, John, you know, those big, uh, 80s. big 80s yes. ballads, yes. ballads, much higher. You know, much higher. To give you some examples, as you were saying that, you know, I was thinking of Van Halen who sang Jump, which is, you know, oh, a yeah. commonly Class, uh, used song. And the interesting thing about Jump is that that's also an instruct- instructional word. So if you think about learning yes. a skill, it's telling you what it wants you to do, perhaps. Mm. You know, that's got a BPM of 129 beats per minute, much higher. So it's going to increase your heart rate. And the science shows that generally when we listen to music, any of us, even in a even in a resting state, our heart rate will, to some extent, mimic the beats per minute in a piece of music. It's really so fascinating. It that just oh, naturally increase or naturally decrease based on sometimes the mood, but also the beat structure within the music itself. And so most of those big ballads like that generally have beats per minute, generally above 120. Um, okay. You know, there's, there's kind of a, that's generally consoled sort of mid-tempo, 120 to 130 BPM. High tempo is 140 above. And then when we're going to those slow levels, we're looking at ranges between, say, 40 and 76 or 75. Mm-hmm. And, then a, and then a slow tempo is about 75 to 100, 110. And, and you can kind of categorize music simply on that one factor. There's other mm-hmm. factors as well, but on the, mm-hmm. just on the beats per minute factor, you can put music and that's, and that's what some of the, um, the runners have been doing effectively, going back to that, that, mm-hmm. um, that track and field decision to sort of you know, yeah. ban music. Uh, you know, runners uh, can be, particularly, particularly runners or some other athletes that have a very regular activity base. Yes. Obviously, yes. running has, has a very regular yes. rhythm. They'll go to their Spotify account. They'll create playlists mm-hmm. that are essentially trying to uh, mimic not only their movement, their cadence, but also their the beats of their heart rate that they want to have Replicate. when they're in different elements of their running mm-hmm. races. I was thinking as we were talking how vital music seems to be in things like spin classes, even at a social level, and that those tracks, as you just alluded to, seem specifically designed to mm-hmm. uh, elicit a particular cadence. Mm-hmm. Have you? got any more sort of background into that yeah i mean i mean there's lots of science out there now that's trying to do that it's it's very challenging to isolate the the beat of a music from also the Mm. emotion that they Mm. are related Mm. clearly but they can be quite different so just to just to um paint a different scenario like some of those some of those uh music pieces they have a very fast high tempo so Mm -hmm. uh, i talked about van halen jump I'm going 80s, so apologies to those people listening. <laughs> She's my musical influence. Um, uh-huh, so if we sure. talk about um, uh, MC Hammer, can't touch this, way back yeah. in, in yes. sort of 80s, 90s, that's got a beat of 133. But if we go back to the 60s, we look at Bob Dylan, Hurricane, that's 135. So those are obviously all eliciting, oh, wow. you know, high, high beats. Yeah. But there's some songs, if we go to UK soccer, for example, and we go to songs that are particularly emotional, and, and this is where the audience effect comes in and, mm. and, and the, the crowd. So if we go mm-hmm. to You'll Never Walk Alone, which is, yep. you know, which is famously Liverpool. sung, you know, in one particular, I can't mention it because I'm a Spurs fan, so I can't mention <laughs> the, the name, I just can't go. That, that's, that's obviously an incredible, emotional, uplifting uh, song associated with the club and the fans, and, and the game. And that's, that's sung at, at a BPM of only 56. 
So it's particularly low, but it's got a high emotional carriage to it. Yes. And so, you know, to your question, John, around, yes, there's a a lot of that work being done still around, you know, uh, producing music of a particular beat with different exercise classes, sometimes with professional athletes, sometimes with more pre-elite athletes, but also in those more social uh, kinds of gatherings like spin classes, weekend warrior kinds of things. Yeah, generally, um, I find when I'm when I'm sort of talking to people in those environments, they're generally trying to associate purely based on on heart rate, BPM, mm-hmm. the the connection between BPM and heart rate, and trying to get those two things aligned in okay. terms of what it's doing after that seventy five percent threshold of 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 workout rate. Remember, there's only there's that ceiling effect mm-hmm. roughly. So mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of dissociating some of the fatigue, it'll work, but then it'll have a ceiling effect. But it will still affect mood. So, mm, mm. you know, it might, it, might, it might encourage someone to stay in the last 15 minutes of that session, <laughs> you know, yeah. just keep going. Yeah. Uh, but they may not still, they may still come out of that going, oh, it was still so hard. It was as hard as the first 45. And, and they may not get some of that, that oxygen benefit where, you know, you yeah. can at, at lower levels actually uh, consume less oxygen because you need less, less oxygen when you have uh, less effort going into an exercise. I'm just going to go off. That's amazing. I was going to go off. Oh, well, you're going to well. go off script. Okay, you go off script first. Well, let's, let's go off script. <laughs> Back to the supermarket. Well, well, yeah, yes. well, no, no. Well, where I wanted to head, and it, it's around noise and um, and obviously the associated mood or emotional state. Uh, you mentioned the diversion of fatigue, which is something that I'm really interested in. We, uh, as you know, as a game in rugby league last year, uh, had no crowds for a period. Yes. And what the venues and in particular the broadcaster did to um, emote and or to to bring forward an emotive response was to include crowd noise even though that there was there was no crowd present yes. they did it for the tv they didn't do it at the game however the one thing i remember about uh, i feel quite fortunate having been there in 2006 Tiffany and I were in the MCG when the women's marathon came in for the Commonwealth Games and mm-hmm. uh, the first and second runner at the time were neck and neck. And it was an unbelievable experience. There were 90,000 people there. And the one thing I remember, Karen McCann, a very famous Australian athlete, finishing in what was one of her final races at that level before she sadly passed. And she said categorically, she was telling herself, coming second was okay when she ran into the stadium. And as soon as she heard the roar of the crowd, and I'm getting goose pimples as I say this, she said all of the pain that she was experiencing completely dissipated from her body. You know, after 42 kilometres, she was able to run almost a three or 400 metre sprint. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. And I know that was a really long-winded question, <laughs> but uh, I'm, really, uh, I'm really curious about this fatigue diversion. Yeah, it's a great question. And as I'm, I wasn't there, but as I listened to your story, John, I mean, I, I could place myself there. So not only your story, but your connection of the story to the sound of of the of the of clapping and the noise, and 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 certainly just the the ninety thousand uh, you know people yeah. that were there creating that that kind of atmosphere. Certainly, it's emotional. Certainly, it evokes emotion. And that, and that, and the great thing about when something engages our emotion in a positive way. It uses much more of our brain, so more parts of our brain are engaged in that experience than than less. So it becomes a bit like, in that effect, uh, like a bit of like, you know glue, a social glue. You know, when we have those kind of big audience effects, whether it be at a rock concert or whether it be you know in a sporting effect, 
it's interesting that most people do the same thing. And, and sometimes they do the same thing because they're all experiencing either a similar, uh, within a range, a similar emotion, or, yeah. or it just becomes kind of like a normalized set of behaviors. So sometimes, you know, some people will stand up and then everyone else will stand up. But that's also associated with the sound that they're creating, applause in that case. And mm-hmm. so, you know, listening to your story, I think Jeff, definitely there would have been a significant affect of, of mood. You know, her mm. mood would have been elevated beyond uh, where it was. And that would have, you know, sort of, we, we, if we were able to measure it, we would have been able to measure that in brain connectivity and, and electricity, literally, within, within the brain. Mm. Because multiple areas of that, of that brain will, uh, will come yeah. up. And, and, you know, depending on, depending on what percentage of threshold, if you're talking about an Olympic elite athlete and she's coming into the stadium, mm. you know, what percentage of, of RPE is she at at that point? But, <laughs> but certainly, certainly what you experience and what she, you know, listening to her quote or the, her story afterwards, a significant mood effect, which, mm. which um, had, had a, an effect we can't measure in real time at that moment, but it certainly moderated her her following, yeah, the, however far yeah. she had to finish, whether it was one or two laps or however many laps she had to finish to, to complete yeah. the marathon. That was a good question, John. And I was actually a bit teary when you were saying it as well. It was, it was a phenomenal experience. I encourage anyone that, and obviously you, you won't be able to take yourself there perhaps the way that Tiff and I are fortunate to have done, but it, it's on YouTube. It's the 2006 Women's Commonwealth Games Marathon and it's got about the last seven or eight minutes and you see the head-to-head battle between Karen and a young Kenyan and they're backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards in the commentary and you can actually hear the people in the stadium go to a crescendo when she when she hits the front outside of the stadium because we're watching it on the scoreboard and and I still remember the the announcer in the ground telling us if you cheer loud enough now she'll be able to hear you and uh oh it was incredible it's yeah so incredible. when our emotional states get elevated what tends to happen is is we increase the secretion of dopamine in our brain and mm. and, and when that increases um that's interesting it's a naturally occurring chemical obviously in our brain we all mm-hmm. have it and, and and we need it particularly as that increases uh, that generally um blocks out perception of of pain fatigue exhaustion whatever so so again we weren't there measuring it but i would yes. i would um i would predict yeah. if we were able to at that particular point in time her dopamine levels would have being elevated because of that yes. mood effect. And the interesting thing about, about this mood effect, as you're describing, this is uh, many, many years ago, and we've talked about 80s music, which is uh, even, <laughs> yeah. even longer ago. That we've done some great, well, I haven't, but there's been some great research, again, out of the US around the longevity of an emotional effect with music. Oh. Um, and it, it is significant. Um, so there's some research out of uh, Vanderbilt University, again, in their medical center uh, by Raina Gordon. And she's done some great research that, that really sort of shows it can it can have a long lasting effect. So she would play some music to her test subjects that were uh, you know um, rated as sad uh, in terms of its emotional affect, and then she would present neutral faces you know to to these same subjects uh, that, and then also play that sad music. And they would they would bias their response upon questioning afterwards to say, oh. You know what were those faces doing when you saw them, and they would all respond, "Oh, they were frowning or they were sad," even though they had mutual expressions. Mm. Um, and so, and this was after a period of of days, uh, at, you know, following following testing. And and here you're conjuring up memories that are you know decades. I don't want to age all of us. Yeah, no, they are. But, yeah. but decades, and 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 that's that 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 eighties music. 
it has a particular feel to it in many senses. People do it evokes a, a period of time. So does '90s music mm-hmm. um, and '70s and '60s and so on. So what we all experience when we listen to music is that is is that emotional connectivity that's associated with either a piece of music or a, or a generational time as well. Hamish, this has been the best conversation. Uh, <laughs> it's been it's been amazing. But um, I guess, and I, I can I, I won't predict your answer, but I will ask you our final question. Would you recommend athletes listen to music? Look, it's it's a good question, and and I always want to sort of um, caveat my answers. Of <laughs> you know my style, so apologies. <laughs> I mean, it and and the, and the caveat is well, it depends what an athlete wants to do. If they mm-hmm. want to elevate their mood, uh, then yes. But the question is, when do they want to elevate them? That's if they what want I was to, ask you. yeah, if they want to relax, then yes. Uh, but when do they want to do it? And then yes, then generally uh, choose uh, things that are appropriate for them. If so, so my short answer is sort of yes. Music has it can have a, a, a significant effect. It can it can help us with routines. It can help us get ready. We can form psychological conditioning or association. So when we hear a piece of music, simply the best, like John, mm-hmm. NRL, we just think yeah. NRL. That, that is the first thing that comes in. So we can kind of condition our kids, you know, in, in appropriate ways around, you know, when a piece of music is being played in the house, then that's time to do something. Yeah. Um, it's the mm-hmm. school bell around schools is a conditioned response. When you hear mm-hmm. the bell, there's an action to take. Yep. And so, I mean, I don't know if you've, you know, depending on the age of some of the kids that uh, parents that might be listening, some schools in New South Wales certainly have changed some of their morning bell to be songs because they're trying to evoke an emotion, like a happy mm. emotion. Oh, it's time for school. It's 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 a fun and a friendly a time. Idea. So rather than using a bell, some schools I've been uh, uh, sort of uh, talking to some teachers about this that uh, have actually been using a musical piece to elicit uh, emotion, a, a happy emotion. That's and then the last thing I'll say about it, since we are talking about kids and and parents on this port on this podcast, is that it's a great conversation starter. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a, you know, depending on the age of your kids and the age of the people who might be listening to this podcast, obviously, kids generally like music of a different style, genre, <laughs> or certainly generation than than us. But it's a great thing to talk about. We yeah. can share uh, the the times, just as you have both done through your stories about. Oh, when I heard this song, I remember this, mm. uh, and that's a great way of of having conversations with your kids. Yeah, yeah, that's a great great way of sharing stories with your kids and asking kids about. Oh, why do you like this music? What you know? Where do you hear this music? Is mm. it on your Spotify or is it at, at school? Do you do your friends like it? It's a great conversation opener and a, and a great in a way a menu of things to talk about. Sport related, absolutely, but also just generally, and it's a great way to share stories. It's a great opener into taking a conversation maybe to another place. Uh, at, you know, around school or around sport. So there's there's a real benefit in using it as a as a medium uh, of of exchange between parents and kids. That's gold. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Sports Parenthood. Please leave a review, share with your friends, or visit our website sportsparenthood.com.au to connect. Catch you next week. <laughs>